This episode is from Series 2 of Modern-ish Poets with Mark Ford and Seamus Perry. To listen to their first series and all other close reading series from the London Review of Books, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. Welcome to Close Readings, the latest in a series of conversations about modern poets who wrote in English, drawing on the rich collection of reviews, essays, and other pieces to be found in the immense back archive of the London Review of Books. My name is Seamus Perry, and I teach at the University of Oxford, and I'm talking to Mark Ford, poet, critic, and professor of English literature at University College London. And our subject today is the eminent Caribbean poet, Derek Walcott. And Mark, being a Caribbean poet isn't just a description of Walcott, it's also his major theme, isn't it? Yes, he belongs to that generation of writers, including such as V.S. Naipaul or Edward Brathwaite, Edward Camo Brathwaite, who are writers looking to find ways of writing that deal with a history that is incredibly complicated, in many ways painful, difficult, uh, and they're doing so in the language of those of the English, and the English are often uh, also the sources of the historical griefs which their works are exploring. So a poet such as Walcott is in a kind of complex, extremely interesting position. And it's one which it takes him quite a long time to work out what kind of poet or indeed painter he was going to be. He started off wanting to be a painter, what kind of artist he was going to be. And that's one of the fascinations of his really enormous oeuvre. I mean, it's uh, thousands of pages of poetry. And from a young age, he was writing a poem or two poems a day from kind of the ages of 10 or 11. So uh, he was convinced from a very young age that he was going to be an artist of some kind. And poetry was the eventual choice. But it's certainly his particular historical situation is encoded in almost every poem he writes. So we should say something about his his background, shouldn't we? He's born in 1930 in the uh, Caribbean island of St. Lucia. And the circumstances of his family are, are quite unusual, aren't they? In, in that St. Lucia is, is broadly speaking, a French-speaking and Catholic. But he grows up in a tiny English-speaking Methodist community. Uh, yes, and compounded by the fact that his father, who was called Warwick, were named after Shakespeare's county, uh, as he likes to jest on a number of occasions, died when he was only one. So he was brought up by his mother, who was a teacher, but supplemented her income as a seamstress. And they were anomalous in in that sense of being a minority on the island. But I think it's worth pointing out that they were, uh, if in the kind of class structures, uh, they were sort of firmly middle class, that he went to extremely good schools um, and was well taught. And it was at these schools that he read English poetry and fell in love with it. So his, his and his enthusiasms for poets such as Dylan Thomas, T.S. Eliot, W.H. Auden, uh, Ezra Pound, W.B. Yeats, great kind of modernist writers, as well as the kind of canonical writers such as Shakespeare and Wordsworth, uh, is extremely present in almost everything he wrote in the first sort of 10 years of his poetic career throughout his 20s. His poetry is in many ways a both a kind of homage to those poets and it's making use of their rhetorical techniques and is looking to find ways of using them in a way that is appropriate to his very different cultural situation to to that of such as Eliot or Auden. So 
to an extent, he he's an interesting example of international uh, the the reach of international modernism in the kind of 1940s and the ways in which a poet who is on the periphery of modernism, which is happening in Europe and America, is exor- absorbing those idioms and trying to adapt them and make use of them in ways that are meaningful to him and to his readership. And he often talks, doesn't he, in interviews and in essays about Caribbean poetry or the Caribbean imagination almost being something that he has to invent from scratch that there's there's nothing there, as it were, as a, an innate literary tradition to inherit. You have to kind of invent or create or concoct a literary tradition of your own from the resources that are at hand. This is what he calls in, in one of um, his essays kind of the prodigious ambition that characterises um, his own youthful writing. Yes, um, and, and so there are advantages to his situation, which uh, to kind of flip the coin slightly, and he identifies with poets such as Walt Whitman, Pablo Neruda, Cesar Vallejo, and the New World writers. I mean, it's important to say that while Walcott is very sensitive to the ways in which kind of European poetry can be seen as complicit with imperialism, He's also interested in writers that he groups under the term Adamic, uh, New World writers, whose work is a rejection of the legacy of imperialism. Um, and I think Walt Whitman is probably the kind of the, the founding father, if I can use that term, in relation to this tradition. And he, in Song of Myself, is creating an idiom that's defiantly different from that of mid-19th century English poetry. And Walcott is kind of, is following in that tradition, is identifying with that tradition. And the great advantage of feeling yourself an Adamic or New World poet is that you feel that you are naming things for the first time. That's why they use the term Adamic for it, that that, that kind of prodigious um, ambition derives from a sense that all is to play for and what is there to lose. And Walcott is perhaps slightly different from such as Whitman or Neruda in being unashamed about making use of the various poets whose work he read and loved. Hopkins is another one. There's, there's something of the riot of Hopkins's energies and descriptive exuberance uh, in Walcott's oeuvre in general. And the fact that he is redeploying this material or these idioms and trying to express his own reality, the reality of growing up in St. Lucia, makes for a kind of really fascinating kind of project, which he embarks on. So his prodigious ambition expresses itself in a couple of privately printed volumes of poetry, doesn't it? He has a a distinguished career as a student at university. He settles in Trinidad for a time and founds a theatre workshop, we're not going to say very much about his, or indeed anything much about his plays today, but it's important to keep in mind, isn't it, that he was a playwright all his life as well. And, and certain aspects of that kind of dramatic or self-dramatizing sort of quality sometimes gets into his verse, uh, perhaps. But then I suppose the first publication that we need to, to notice is in 1962, where he he publishes a, a, a sort of collection of his earlier works under the title In a Green Night, which is published by Cape in the UK and uh, Farrah Strauss and Giroux in the States. So this is actually a, a, a real moment of arrival on the publishing scene, isn't it? Yes, he's 32 by this stage. And um, his mum very gamely put up the money for his first volumes. So they were kind of underwritten by her. And he did, in fact, make break even on them. So uh, he sold them all to his friends. Um, and uh, But it's not until publication 
of in the green night in 62 that he gets going and the first poem from that is is one a far cry from africa the first one that we're going to kind of consider is interesting in the way in which it it raises the dilemmas that i've been talking about for the post-colonial poet as who should he identify with and in this case the poem he's talking about the mau mau insurrection in kenya in the late 1950s and he's on the one hand excited by that, on the other quite appalled by the violence in it. And he is pondering his own responses to what was one of the many independence movements spreading around the world. So yes, I mean, in terms of situating Walcott's early poetry, it's taking place in the context of the twilight of the British Empire. And he's always keen to explore the ways in which empire projects itself and then how the legacy of empire is experienced by post-independence societies. And in this one, he he thinks about where he should place himself and he comes up with what is a kind of classic Walcott, Walcottian way of exploring it by a kind of ambivalence. He writes uh, in this poem of how he has cursed the drunken officer of British rule. How choose between this Africa and the English tongue I love, betray them both, or give back what they give. So it's, it's got that kind of very eloquent balance between, and, and that kind of punning on what giving back means. Is giving back somehow violent, or is giving back taking the English tongue and reconverting it to post-colonial purposes, and then you know giving it back, uh, the empire writing back so to speak, to use Salman Rushdie's phrase. So I think that, that Walcott realised in the, in the poems collected in this volume that that was his subject. But what is so interesting is that for him, it didn't involve wholesale rejection of the poetries that he'd loved, but a, a re-angling of them so that he could express what he wanted to express. And a kind of unashamed uh, use in poems, particularly one also included in The Green Knight called Ruins of a Great House, a very Yeatsian topic, and it's a rather Yeatsian poem, isn't it? It is a Yeatsian poem, um, especially perhaps in that in that sense of you know rhetorical swagger that you get in many of Yeats's greatest poems. Uh, the invocation of great names, although invoked in Walcott's poem in a much more shady and shadowy way than often in, in Yeats. Um, I thought next of men like Hawkins, Walter Raleigh, Drake, ancestral murderers, and poets, more perplexed in memory now by every ulcerous crime. That conjunction of murderers and poets is very telling and, again, very characteristic, isn't it? Uh, yes, I mean, Ye- Yeats can be seen as the sort of first post-colonial poet or as as a post-colonial poet in lots of quite interesting ways. And his example was very important to Walcott, but he never attacked Edmund Spencer, <laughs> for instance, who advocated the, the kind of destruction of the Irish by starvation, our listeners may know, as ancestral murderers and poets. And yet he, he goes on, in memory now, by every ulcerous crime, the world's green age then was a rotting lime. So the idea of the kind of early, early, the new world, even back then, there's there's no kind of, you know, mythical golden age as we used to be taught at school. And the Elizabethan explorers, as they were known, gallantly discovering new worlds. Uh, these are kind of pirates. And he's also very conscious always of the middle passage of how the Atlantic is not only the site of exploration, but is of the slave trade. 
whose stench became the charnel galleon's text. The rot remains with us, the men are gone. But as dead ash is lifted in a wind that fans the blackening ember of the mind, my eyes burn from the ashen prose of Dunn. He's talking about John Dunn there. So I suppose what we want to get over is how very, very literary Walcott is, isn't it? That, that, that he was working within the literary tradition, however much he's, he is kind of reangling it or turning it upside down to denounce people such as Walter Raleigh, who is still taught on English courses and is, is kind of present in the national imagination and exposing them as murderers as well as poets. And that immersion in um, an English literary tradition and an Elizabethan tradition creates a, a very surprising turn in this poem, doesn't it? The, the great house that's ruined is presumably the, the house of empire that is falling to pieces. And Albion is condemned for much of the poem. But then there's this very interesting move towards the end of the poem where Walcott recognises that Albion once was also colonised, that this historical process of colonisation and um, subjection is a kind of perennial recurrent historical phenomenon. And the poem ends in a very striking way, not on a note of outrage, although the poem does, certainly does contain justified outrage, but in a note of compassion. He says, all in compassion ends so differently from what the heart arranged, and then quotes from Dunn's famous sermon, uh, No Man is an Island Entire of Itself. So it's a very striking moment in, in Walcott's imagination, I think, isn't it, to begin by recognising terrible distance and gulfs between peoples and between persons, but then in the end to recognise something more like a common predicament. Yes, it was. It, it's an interesting manoeuvre, perhaps borrowed from the opening of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, in which Marlowe says this too was one of the dark places on the earth and recalls the Roman legions arriving there. And Walcott says that Albion too was once a colony like ours. So in a way, you could see it as a way of excusing England that uh, it, it, it was primitive in inverted commas and barbaric in inverted commas before the Romans got there. And something of that analogy is one that modernism plays out on the back of Conrad's uh, opening part of darkness. Uh, yes, yeah, so Albion too was once a colony like ours, a piece of the continent, a part of the main, quoting from John Donne, nook shotten. He can't leave it alone. Nook shotten from Henry V. So that the kind of Shakespearean language is present even at, at this moment. Um, and he's creating a comparison between, yes, England before the Romans and Caribbean colonies as they were then, and uh, looking for a way of negotiating some kind of relationship which is meaningful and that works. I think that is, is that what strikes me as the, one of the most interesting aspects of Walcott's verse career is his pragmatism. Uh, he's always looking for something that will work. And that's why Robinson Crusoe becomes one of his heroes, or Robinson Crusoe and Friday, along with Prospero and Caliban, become the dominant inherited templates for post-colonial writers looking to renegotiate their relationship to uh, the imperial centre. And Robinson Crusoe, he writes a number of poems, uh, Crusoe's Journal, Crusoe's Island, uh, and, and there's a whole massive poems about Robinson Crusoe. I'm thinking of Elizabeth Bishop's Crusoe in England uh, as well. But Crusoe has a particular resonance for Walcott 
because uh, he is a kind of the Adamic figure, <laughs> the first creation of the Adamic figure in the 18th century uh, novel, who is adjusting to a new world and is coming up with you know ways of creating an umbrella and so on so as to keep the sun off and and to an extent that that walcott sees himself as following in his footsteps that sort of resourcefulness you mean that kind of um can do kind of spirit that seeks to make the best of the situation or the circumstances in which it finds itself uh, totally absolutely totally and in crusoe's journal he makes explicit the connection he talks about how that that defoe via crusoe writes how the intellect appraises objects surely even the bare necessities of style are turned to use like those plain iron tools he salvages from shipwreck hewing a prose as odorous as raw wood to the ads out of such timbers came our first book our profane genesis whose adam speaks that prose which blessing some sea rock startles itself with poetry surprise and so on so kind of crusoe ha- ha- has suggested a way in which you can appreciate or respond to the new world landscape in a way which is pragmatic and can convert style to something which is which which serves the purpose uh, and when he's commensurate with Caribbean reality as Walcott experienced it. The, the Crusoe figure in the poems comes across as being very isolated. I mean, obviously, Crusoe is isolated for the first part, at least, of Defoe's novel. And that idea of the lonely soul inhabiting a universe with, you know, God and Adam and Canaan and these vast sort of mythological presences in it, that's something that features in in a, in a lot of Walcott's poetry in a way which you know might tempt you to think of him as in some sense as a religious religious poet. Would you agree? Well, yeah, he grew up a Methodist, and I, I I don't think he ever sort of denounced or renounced his beliefs, and I think that ties in with his notion of the epic as well. Obviously, the great Christian epic, Paradise Lost, which also is uh, Milton is also a. Uh, writer name checked by Walcott on, on a number of occasions, um, but he is also looking at it through the lens, actually, in, in this poem of um, Wallace Stevens. Somewhat surprisingly, he talks of that the poetry w- w- is relating to a green world, one without metaphors. So I think he's going to school on the ways in which American modernism, such as that of Stevens in particular, rejected certain aspects of the, its European inheritance and it moved away from the metaphors inherited and that gives you this this Adamic vision of the green world it's a very Stevensian world one without metaphors that part of the process for the post-colonial poet or the post-imperial or the anti-imperial poet is to undo or call into question the metaphors which have worked in the in the for the imperial forces uh, undo those or reconfigure them in such a way that they serve your purpose rather than their purpose. Yes, and it's it's interesting, isn't it, the way that Walcott ends this poem on a slightly surprising note as well, in that he, as it were, weaves into the poem scepticism about the claim that, that Crusoe's Adamic world is, is a pure and green one, ending all of us yearn for those fantasies of innocence for our faith's arrested phase, when the clear voice startled itself, saying, Water, heaven, Christ, hoarding such heresies as God's loneliness moves in his smallest creatures. 
Um, it's a wonderful ending to the poem, but it's also very striking, uh, as it were, for the moral vision of the poem, isn't it? Conceding at this at this late stage that that these states of innocence that the poem has been imagining are actually just fantasies. They may be necessary fantasies, as Stevens might call them, necessary fictions, but they remain they remain fictive. They're they're not historical realities. Uh, yes, there, there is always that kind of hard headed aspect in Walcott, which he writes a great piece, a prose piece called What the Twilight Says, in which he talks about how he walks through the the, the slums uh, of St. Lucia at twilight, and they look very picturesque, uh, and how beautiful they are. And he thinks, yes, at twilight, everything looks beautiful. Um, but uh, he's also aware that they uh, contain real suffering. So he's often modulating between the dispiriting reality and poverty of St. Lucia or other kind of Caribbean countries that he lived in uh, during his 20s, and this grand ambition, which somehow wants to convert that or to use that poverty and to transfigure that poverty into an opportunity, this prodigious ambition. And he calls poem collections, you know, you know the, the bounty, the prodigal, uh, and so on, that prodigious ambition, which can convert these things into opportunities rather than be depressed by them. And, and that, that, that sort of buoyancy, which drives his language, I think, throughout his career, there's a kind of irrepressible metaphorical exuberance uh, which has drawn criticism from a range of critics as diverse as um, Evan Boland and I think Helen Vendler possibly or she criticizes him for being too much an imitator of other poets but I think that imitatio strand in his work can be made sense of uh, in a post-colonial context as kind of relating to you know Homi Baba's notion of imitation is central for the post-colonial writer who is as a as a as a tool to be deployed against the empire and crusoe um as a figure i mean just to say one last thing about him crusoe as a, as a figure works for walcott brilliantly well because he embodies a sort of ambivalence is is that right on the one hand he has got this freshness of perception because he's seeing things that he has never seen before and trying to make a new language for the circumstances he finds himself in but on the other hand because of the history with friday he is also paradigmatic of of colonialism isn't he that's that's the other great use that crusoe has within the english literary imagination he is a he is a colonizer so he's at once exactly what Walcott is deploring, while at the same time paradoxically representing an imaginative virtue that that Walcott celebrates. Yes, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the balance between curse and profit, isn't it? As in the kind of, you know, the Caliban quote, you taught me language and my profit on it is, uh, I know how to curse. So to what extent, and, and that goes back to the first poem that we were looking at, the, the betraying and the giving back, how much should the poet be offering profit uh, in the language and how much should he be offering curse or how to fuse the two. And I think that's what, what Walcott's mature work goes on to do. But set central to that was an understanding of his own life. And that sort of leads on to his grand projet of the late 1960s, from 1965 to 1972. He was writing this uh, enormously long autobiographical verse poem called Another Life, which you can relate to something like the prelude quite kind of straightforwardly. It is Walcott attempting to understand his own situation, what kind of poet he is, in the same same way in which Wordsworth is 
is doing in the prelude uh, and it's it it is it generates much good very good writing i would say it is the kind of breakthrough volume though it, it it's perhaps um somewhat overlooked in his his earth but uh i think ian sansom is right to see that as the moment in which walcott really hits his stride and is able to present himself and all the fellow fellow St. Lucians, somewhat in the manner of Dylan Thomas is under milk wood. I always think that there is a kind of, he loved Dylan Thomas um, and Dylan Thomas was kind of drunk on words. But in both, there was this tremendous curiosity about what the other people in uh, the town, Grosilet or Castries in Santa Lucia are like, and a, a determination to capture them, represent them, to give uh, an account of their lives which is similar, I think, was what Joyce is doing in Dubliners or Ulysses as well. The part of the post-colonial epic project is to dis- describe uh, what what has not been described from that particular perspective before in the language which has been imposed on the peoples living in that in those lands. Yes, in a, in a very particular way, it's a sort of celebration of the provincial, isn't it, or a transformation of the provincial into the central. Yes. Um, as he says himself at one point in the poem, provincialism loves the pseudo-epic, which is presumably what he's writing. Provincialism loves the pseudo-epic. So if these heroes have been given a stature disproportionate to their cramped lives, remember that I beheld them at knee height and that their thunderous exchanges rumbled like gods about another life, which wonderful, wonderful lines which sort of wander in and mock heroic and then wander out into something more like genuine heroic. And that interest in, in the, as it were, the provincial scale of life as having a, a kind of unexpected epic potential, that's the great discovery, really, of, of another life, don't you think? Yes, and not to be ashamed of these kind of switches of register from one from what kind of high flown mode to a quite kind of more pathetic or, or less high flown mode. And that that's all part of the, the, the rich tapestry of the kind of Walcottian pageant. And in, the, in that one, he goes on to say, I saw as through the glass of some provincial gallery, the hieratic objects, which my father loved, the stuffed dark nightingale of Keats. I mean, it's a really telling moment, isn't it? To think of Warwick Walcott having a nightingale because he loves Keats's own to a nightingale so much. And he talks about romantic taxidermy and so on. So I think it's an acceptance of that provinciality and an unembarrassedness about it. I think that is the kind of the crucial ways in which the traffic between the provinces and the centre is made possible in Walcott, who then, then, we should say, goes on to become one of the most central poets of his generation, the kind of in the in the super elite Premier League band up there with Seamus Heaney, another poet who's negotiating a post-colonial legacy. Uh, Les Murray can also be construed in those terms. Joseph Brodsky, who's obviously escaping from from Soviet Union. They were the, the big four when I was kind of reading poetry in the 70s and 80s and 90s. They kind of dominated the the kind of the poetry circuit as the kind of the superstars. So it is interesting. They all come from positions that are can be construed as in opposition to centres of power and that their poetry can all be read as in the post-colonial kind of context that we are outlining for Walcott. So there was a great kind of appetite in the poetry world in general for this kind of of exploration of the legacy of empire. And I suppose before moving on, we should also say that if Walcott was criticised for what um, Stephen Brooke in his piece in the LRB calls lushness in his earlier works, 
by the time you get to another life, the, the, the verses become much more chased and sort of controlled and, and, and driven by a kind of a narrative interest and, and even, you know, um, in some ways drawing upon some rhythms that aren't unlike prose. And also in its subject matter, it's not only these characters, but also an interest in objects, isn't it? In, in the things, in the, in the paraphernalia of ordinary life, which uh, make you remember that he had toyed with the idea of being a painter at one stage. I'm, I'm thinking of lines describing the objects of his childhood, like this radiance of sharing extends to the simplest objects, to a favorite hammer, a paintbrush, a toothless, gum-sunken old shoe, and, and the list goes on after that. And then he turns and says in a very beautiful moment, addressing his mother, your house sang softly of balance, of the rightness of placed things. And, and this new interest in things is, uh, is, is a great step forward in his poetry, don't you think? Yes. I think America has a, a kind of crucial role in the formation of Walcott as a poet. Um, and particularly the work of Robert Lowell was extremely influential on his work of the 1960s. And Ro Lowell's Life Studies, which has exactly that kind of attention to detail and that kind of ability to make the domestic property that has been remembered by the poet or has value for the poet somehow part of the the, the domestic scenario that the poet is, is turning into life studies. I think that becomes very much the way that Walcott finds out of the imitation of Thomas and Yeats and Alden and co, that Lowell, uh, the confessional poets, particularly Lowell though, whom he knew and they, they had a kind of, you know, they, they, they met, met each other a number of times in the sixties. Um, and there's ways in which you can compare a poem like The Castaway with Sylvia Plath's Ariel. And you can think, well, both of these poems are very inflected by Lowellian cadences in completely different ways. And it makes you understand how how useful the Lowellian template was for poets as different from each other as Walcott and Sylvia Plath. Um, and indeed, Heaney in the 1970s is also learning a lot from, from, from Lowell, isn't he? Yeah. So by the 1980s, then, the early 1980s, um, he has what is, I suppose, his most life-changing appointment, which is to a, a, a chair, I guess it was a chair in creative writing, was it, at, at Boston University. So he's in the same kind of neck of the woods as Heaney, who has picked up um, a, a professorship at Harvard. And as you were as you were saying, Brodsky is the other kind of member of the group who's also in New England around this time. And he starts writing lots of poems about his travels, doesn't he? He, he has a, a, one of his books called The Fortunate Traveller. And these are, are almost like sort of postcard poems from an itinerant kind of poetic superstar on, on his travels. Uh, they are. A, a lot of them express a, a delight in finally seeing these things, which he's only heard about, going to Venice for the first time, going to... Normandy or there's one called Normandy and so on, going to all these, London in particular, going to these places for the first time, seeing them and somehow then being able to kind of come to terms with them. So the, the, the travelogue mode is is different for such as, as Walcott in that it is a, it is him somehow seeing in the flesh all the, all the great monuments 
or or paintings which he'd seen only in reproduction there's a many much of another life is taken up with how important to him the work of such as Cimabue was or Giotto that these kind of Italian primitive religious painters were exactly the kind of painters whom he wanted to imitate uh, and he sees them in books and he shares these with a friend of his and they they make paintings out of these European paintings which they've only seen in books and lo and behold from the 80s onwards Walcott is in the position to see them in the the real thing so there, there is um, a tremendous delight and exuberance and and just aesthetic pleasure for him in responding to these places and then being able to include them in his poetic texture. They can be somewhat overwhelming at times. I think that Walcott's idioms, which we've are very various, but that they're sometimes not as tightly bound together or interrelated with each other in a meaningful way as they are in the long poems. My own favourite poems of, of Walcott's are the really long ones, Another Life and Omeros, which came out in 1990 and was um, was cited by the Nobel Prize Committee in 1992 as kind of central to Walcott's oeuvre and as his great achievement. And I would probably agree with that, that, that Omeros which is, is an enormously long poem, over 300 pages, does include much really uh, t- terrifically vivid and interesting writing, as well as being his fullest working out of the kind of, I'll call it the Atlantic dilemma, how the Caribbean poet deals with the Atlantic inheritance from Europe, as well as his uh, Atlantic contemporaries in America. Um, I, I think American poets, contemporary American poets, much more influence on Walcott than any contemporary British poets, poets such as Larkin or Hughes had on him. It, it was such as Lowell uh, in particular who offered him a, way, a, a new way of writing. Now we should try and convey something of the nature of Omeros. It, it's a very difficult poem to characterise, isn't it? In one way, it's a it's a rewriting of Homer, Homeric narrative within the context of the Caribbean. So, in a way, it's sort of doing what Joyce does in Ulysses, taking you know Homeric narrative narrative shapes and reimagining them within a within a new um, and historically con- contemporary context. But it also has other things going on in it too, doesn't it? And and the whole narrative shape of the poem is 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 much less clear than that summary that I've just stumbled through might imply yes there are i mean there are overarching narratives which one can make sense of and i think um, there's a terrific piece on it in the lrb by uh, nick everett from 1991 a really incisive review which explores it in terms of allegory and i think that really makes a lot of sense that if you don't you think of it as an epic in that it's which uh, ezra pound defined as a poem including history well yes the poem includes a lot of history uh, but it's all happening through this shifting allegorical set of metaphors which structure the poem there's things like the sea swift this bird which has a kind of cruciform shape which i think perhaps again alludes to the kind of a religious element in in, in walcott's imagination uh, and this sea swift is a kind of supernatural being who transports Achille, um, who is based obviously on the Greek hero Achilles, transports him back through time to Africa at the time of when slaves were being gathered on the coast of Africa. So you get this horrifying section at the beginning of book three, in which 15 slaves are captured and chained and are then 
sent off to the off to the Caribbean. This is Akil finding his ancestors and he's meeting his father and it's a version of, of the descent into the underworld. Yeah, and the, the meeting with ancestors in the underworld that you get in the Aeneid um, and the Odyssey. So he, he makes use of anything that comes to hand from from the Homeric world as much as he wants to without any botheredness about how it means in a larger sense just to create this series of analogies because on one level what the poem is about is exorcising this habit of creating analogies between caribbean life or antillean life and aegean life between um uh, the life of omeros and that of homer so on one level he is taking as far as possible in a kind of like a like a kind of medical treatment in which you do as much Homeric stuff as possible to get the Homeric stuff out of your system. And I think the, the poem is, um, I think, as, as Nick Everett points out, a therapeutic epic uh, in the way in which Song of Myself is a therapeutic epic in that it, it allows Walcott to step free of this European inheritance and to feel comfortable with his Santa Lucian inheritance um so the stakes are very high uh, and it is extremely expansive and he, he takes his time about it expanding each aspect of the narrative which, which, which kind of as it catches his attention yes um the everett piece is terrific you're absolutely right and i and i i agree with you that he's he's very sharp on the way that that the poem at once recognizes the, the bad things that that are the inheritance of a colonized people but then also works in a way which isn't at all starry-eyed or or falsely optimistic, but but works to find ways in which those hurts, those damage, those bits of damage might be cured or at least um, accommodated. And I think that that's a that's a very fine perception which captures a lot of the feeling of especially the the later books of of the poem, the later chapters of the poem. There's an interesting character in it, isn't there, called Major Plunkett, who is a a retired soldier, an expat, a wounded veteran of World War II who's become a pig farmer. And a lot of the the poem is imagining Plunkett, as it were, trying to understand the history of the of the island in whose colonial history he's played a minor but nevertheless kind of representative part as a as a figure of British imperialism. Yes, and he gets involved, very interested in the actual history of the wars fought between the English and the French over the island of Saint Lucia. And it was called Helen because it was fought over so much by the English and the French. It was called Helen. And that ties in with the th- thematic interests of the poem. In the first two books, you've got these characters, uh, Kiel and Hector, who are both in love with a woman called Helen. And that is refracted through this battle between the English and French for the Helen that is Saint Lucia. And that is a kind of Iliad bit. The first two books are the Iliad book bit of the poem. And then you get the wanderings of Achille to Africa in this dream vision sequence in which he meets his father uh, and which is related to the Odyssey. Uh, And also you get the narrator, who is obviously Walcott himself, wandering around the world and also figuring himself as heartbroken. The poem was written on the back of the end of his third marriage to Norlene Metiver, and there's a sense in which his own (laughs) psychological state is uh, is also being reflected in the poem. So it's a lyric poem about a lost love, as well as an epic poem about 
Achilles and Hector, so to speak, uh, as well as about the post-colonial situation and the co- how the coloni- colonial wars were fought. So it really is multi-angled. It's a real kaleidoscope of a poem, and you can feel a bit lost in it. But I found that Nick Everett piece gave me a, a really good understanding of the actual narrative arc. And in the last two books, uh, you have uh, Walcott returning to Santa Lucia or the narrator returning to Santa Lucia. You have Hector dying in a car crash, Achille actually marrying Helen or getting together with Helen, who is carrying Hector's child. You get a character called Philoctet, uh, who's based on Homeric Philoctetes, who was w- wounded by a snake bite. He's suffering from a, um, a, a gash on his shin, and that is cured by a seed, which has been brought by this um, sea uh, swift from Africa and dropped into the vegetation of St. Lucia, grows into a plant. And there's a woman called Mark Kilman, who is a kind of Sybil figure. Again, it's a kind of typical transposition of a Homeric character into Walcott's world. And she is able to heal Philoctet with the this plant. So it's about healing as well as it is about a kind of diagnosis of all the problems that bedeviled the history of a Caribbean island. And by the end of it, what we're confronted with is the evils of tourism. So tourism is the great threat by the end. And and this is, I suppose, is where, where it's a dilemma that Walcott can't solve. And he misses the poverty, the picturesque poverty, which he felt was good for his poetry of the old days. Uh, on the other hand, there's the kind of tourist, the tourist dollar, which raises the living standards but also introduces, you know, unpleasant, trashy hotels and um, American tourists who are crass and know nothing about the culture uh, where they're spending their holidays. That sort of movement towards something more hopeful or something more reconciliatory within the world of the poem is important, isn't it? Because otherwise the the organising idea of the poem, which is that history repeats itself, which is a view that uh, Walcott expresses in quite a few poems of the 1990s, can lead to a kind of V.S. Naipaul-type political pessimism, something that Blake Morrison writes about in his LRB piece on Walcott, that you often in Walcott have a sense of things going round and round in the same barrel. And I think the one of the great things about Omeros is the way that, in, as I say, in this entirely unsentimental way, it, it sort of glimpses a way out of that of that trap of that of that sense in which history becomes a, a, a kind of imprisonment yes i th- i think though it ex- it um, exudes a kind of confidence in his own poetic equipment um which i think is is probably the new aspect of it that he's he it's written very roughly in terzerima so it's got this dantescan sort of feel to it and you also have ghost figures like there's a very moving passage when he meets his father Warwick towards the end of of book one and Warwick who died when he was as I said when when Derek was only one he died of of a an ear infection and and this gives rise to a sort of a, a nice joke over their kind of shared love of Shakespeare this is Warwick speaking I was raised in this obscure Caribbean port where my bastard father christened me for his shire Warwick the Bard's county but never felt part of the foreign machinery known as literature. I preferred verse to fame, but I wrote with the heart of an amateur. It's that will you inherit. I died on his birthday, one April. 
your mother sewed her own costume as Portia, then that disease, like Hamlet's old man's, spread from an infected ear. I believe the parallel has brought you some peace, death imitating art, eh? And that, that's obviously, in one way, it looks like a Dante pastiche. But it, it's something, again, that, that Heaney does a, a great deal of in, in, in Station Island. But no, not pastiche. It's just making use of Dante for this particular rather moving interaction between the ghost of his father um, and his son. And he, that, that, that section ends. What was Warwick doing transplanting Warwickshire? I saw him patterned in shade, the leaves in his hair, the vines of the lucent body, the swift's blown seed. Uh, and that, that sea swift does kind of crop up again and again as a kind of structuring, well, an allegorical element, as in a medieval painting, you might say, kind of, you know, denoting a particular theme. <laughs> uh, and so that the huge patterning of the poem, it can kind of be mapped as this vast allegorical patterning with moments which which are very moving and affecting, particularly when he's dealing with his own with his own inheritance and, and and his father so as as we've been conveying i'm sure a poem of extraordinary sophistication and yet a poem that also has within it a great attraction a, a great reverence for what it calls at one point green simplicities once you have seen everything and gone everywhere cherish our island for its green simplicities and i suppose it's the green simplicities that are under threat by the tourist industry and that that sense of of a, a kind of a saving simplicity that is away from all the sophistications that um european tradition has come to represent is is what he turns to at the end when he asks in a, a wonderful rhetorical question why not see helen as the sun saw her with no homeric shadow swinging her plastic sandals on that beach alone as fresh as the sea wind why make the smoke a door? You know, and so this this um, attempt to imagine an entirely f- fresh perception that isn't laden with any of the baggage of a of a of an imposed Western consciousness is something that haunts the poem quite a lot, doesn't it? Yes, and, and when Philoctet uh, is cured. He makes explicit use of the, the Adam imagery. So she threw Adam a towel and the yard was Eden and it's light the first days. So that fantasy of a return to, to innocence. But of course, you can only kind of gesture towards the, the kind of post-Homeric world through the Homeric language. So in a sense, it's a sleight of hand in that Walcott never does give up writing a very literary European inflected uh, prose that makes use of all the rhythms of such as kind of Wordsworth and 19th century poetry that it's in it's, it's never strays that far from the the traditions in which he was brought up but it's able to articulate what it will be like to move beyond those and in that sense it is a bit like Stevens you know Stevens says we should live without these metaphors but we can't actually do that all we can say is yes wouldn't that be great and agree with the ideal of living in this uh, uh, fresh green world where the yard was Eden uh, and so on but it, its literary effectiveness is is nevertheless becomes particularly powerful I find the opening scene actually when when he imagines all the, the the kind of the crucial moment is when they chop down the trees to uh, create their canoes and that's the kind of originary moment of epic is is a brilliant sort of transposition of the epic moment in which the nation is founded and it's founded by 
creating boats that go to sea. So the seaness, which is encoded in the name Omeros, and he actually talks about that in a uh, the mare bit, <laughs> uh, is the sea bit, as the sea bit. And the sea is as strong an image as the sea swift, as the sort of, as the dominant scenario or kind of um, tapestry in which the whole thing takes place. Yes, and we should have said, shouldn't we, that, that of all his subjects, the one that I think he finds most compelling is the sea. I mean, that's the, the importance of being an island dweller is absolutely at the top of his mind, isn't it? I mean, we saw him being a, one by done talking about no man is an island. Well, you are an island in Volcott, and it's, it's good because you're surrounded by this sort of sense of oceanic consciousness which flows in and out and around and in this endless and, and infinite way. Um, and shapes a lot of his most extraordinary extended similes. Yes, I think it, he, he's brilliant at lyrical evocations of the sea and the impact of the waves on the shore. But those are always, or that not always, but then there are the historical awareness of the sea as part of the Atlantic Triangle, which sent slaves to the Caribbean and then sugar up to New England and then back to Liverpool and then down to the uh, the west coast of Africa again. So the sea is, is kind of historically conjugated as well as lyrically, uh, ly- lyrically celebrated over and over in Walcott. Now, we've been saying that his home ground really is long poems, the idea of length, of extendedness, and possibly, you know, extending forever and ever. The last line of that poem, when he left the beach, the sea was still going on. <laughs> you feel that the poem actually could, <laughs> could go on a bit more if it wanted to. But we, sh- we should just mention perhaps that he, he was occasionally, not often, but occasionally capable of really beautiful short poems and the one that i know you like is is the poem to norlene which also picks up on on the biographical circumstances that you were talking about uh, that lie behind omoros too with the with the failure of of that marriage i wondered if you could read us that little poem yes to norlene the beach will remain empty for more slate colored dawns of lines the surf continually erases with its sponge, and someone else will come from the still sleeping house, a coffee mug warming his palm as my body once cupped yours, to memorise this passage of a salt-sipping turn, like when some line on a page is loved, and it's hard to turn. Uh, I should say that the turn in the um, third line from the end is the bird, a turn, and it's a verb to turn. So he's rhyming turn and turn. And it again makes use of the sea. And it again makes use of what is Walcott's kind of favourite trope, a trope that occurs again and again in his poetry, in which metaphors from writing are applied to the landscape. And he is completely addicted to this particular trope. And for a time you think, well, why is he doing that again? And after kind of considering it a bit, I thought, well, it's part of that prodigious bounty that writing has what has liberated him to experience the landscape. So writing is part of the landscape in some fundamental way for his imagination. So in this, this rather kind of sort of after the, after the event poem uh, in which he is accepting that he has lost this relationship and he's imagining Norlene 
with a new partner, he, yes, creates something rather lyrical out of it. And uh, yes, I, I, th- I think that that's that's one of one moment when when his lyricism doesn't expand beyond the kind of framework as it so often does and, and kind of restrains itself to create a particularly um, unforgettable moment. So in 1992, um, he's awarded the Nobel Prize, something that you've already alluded to. And from the 1990s, mid-1990s onwards, he is internationally a traveller. He li- lives for a bit of the time in Greenwich Village, but is is basically based again in St. Lucia. He continues to write all the themes that we've been talking about, continue to shape his poems, the volumes of poems that he produces. And there are some very good things in the later collections on these recurrent themes of identity and uh, and the ambivalence of in- inheritance and cultural inheritance. But I think we would agree, wouldn't we, that Omeros remains the the high watermark of of his of his writing life, and 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 the most sort of fully satisfying um, exploration of those recurrent themes. Uh, yes, I, I mean we should say also that Omeros, like his other long poems, is very wanders a lot. You get a large section in which he gets interested in the Trail of Tears of the Sioux and Dakota. Native American peoples, and you get you think, well, what's that doing in a poem about St. Lucia? And so there's a kind of compendiousness, a capaciousness uh, about about Walcott that the more the merrier, which has not always appealed to all critics. Um, and uh, a couple of the pieces in the LRB make note of that. But I think he does get back on form with his last, not back on form, but I his last volume, White Egrets, which was awarded the T.S. Eliot Prize and was a kind of belated uh, attempt to honour Walcott in a country that perhaps hadn't honoured him uh, as much um, as America had, certainly. And he does offer some brilliant descriptions of of London, in particular in Omeros, when um, uh, Major Plunkett goes there and complains how expensive it is. Uh, and you also get kind of get a, a vision of London as the centre of empire. And he talks of uh, the barges on the Thames chained to the Thames as our islands are. So the notion that he's expanding from the centre to think of all the ways in which the colonial properties of the empire are kind of chained to the centre of power. So it, this really interesting writing about London itself. But White Egrets is, is mainly sonnets or versions of sonnets set around the world a lot in saint lucia and some of them are are really terrific Uh, others don't quite hit the mark in my opinion but but some of them are wonderful well why don't we end with um the very last poem in that volume in that sequence published in 2010 this book um, when walcott was 80 and its last poem i think is is one of the it's one of the highlights of, of the volume a very beautifully cadenced um, sort of autumnal poem which draws on lots of the things that we've been talking about today it's it's island consciousness isn't it that's partly what the poem is about um, also about ancestry um, and also about the uh, the perpetuity of the sea so lots and lots of things that moved Walcott throughout a very long writing life 
are all getting sort of gathered together for one last time in this in this final poem from White Egret. Yes, and I worth pointing out that it's thirteen lines long. Uh, so, in a sense, is is his own take on the, it's the Walcottian take on the sonnet. It's missing its last line, but the sonnet was obviously the fundamental to the ways in which he experienced poetry. So here's it's paying one last homage to the traditions in which he grew up with a particular twist. And it again makes use of metaphors drawn from writing to describe landscape. This page is a cloud between whose fraying edges a headland with mountains appears brokenly, then is hidden again until what emerges from the now cloudless blue is the grooved sea and the whole self-naming island, its ochre verges, its shadow-plunged valleys and a coiled road threading the fishing villages, the white silent surges of comas along the coast where a line of gulls has arrowed into the widening harbour of a town with no noise, its streets growing closer like print you can now read two cruise ships, schooners, a tug, ancestral canoes, as a cloud slowly covers the page and it goes white again, and the book comes to a close. This episode is from Series 2 of Modern-ish Poets with Mark Ford and Seamus Perry. To listen to their first series and all other close reading series from the London Review of Books, sign up to our close reading subscription go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.